off to a bad start. No, it can only get better. <coughs> Good morning and, and welcome to this Bailey Gifford event at uh, the Edinburgh International Book Festival, the Meet the Author event. I'm Ramona Koval from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and it's my very great pleasure to be in conversation today with one of the most important American writers of his generation, Richard Ford. It's 20 years since Richard Ford's novel, The Sports Writer, introduced us to Frank Bascom and the intensities of American <coughs> suburbia. In that book, over an Easter weekend, 38-year-old Frank copes with his marriage, which is falling apart, the death of his youngest son, and the realisation that he'll never achieve his dream of being a novelist. Its Pulitzer Prize and Penn Faulkner award-winning sequel was Independence Day. Frank was now 44. He moved into his ex-wife's old house. He settled into the suburbs to reconnect with his family and to sell real estate. Um, he moved into, in, in that book into what he called his existence period. Um, he dates his girlfriend Sally. He goes on a tour, a car tour, with his troubled son Paul. And the third of the trilogy, The Lay of the Land, is set around Thanksgiving Day. It's 2000. It's before the election has delivered George Bush Jr. to the White House. It's before 9-11. Frank is 55. He's calling this his permanent period. And before um, I, I speak with Richard Ford and you get a chance to ask him questions, he's going to read to us from Lay of the Land. So please welcome Richard Ford to Edinburgh. <coughs> Thank you very much um, for coming today. It's a thrill for me to be here with Ramona, who is an old friend. Um, when I got up this morning, of course, it was raining and it was cloudy and looked horrible and I was cold. <laughs> and then I came here and it was sunny and it made me think about a wonderful poem of Alistair Reed's called Scotland, which I'll quickly read to you. Well, not quickly, I'll read it carefully, but it isn't very long. It was a day peculiar to this piece of the planet when larks rose on long thin strings of singing and the air shifted with the shimmer of actual angels. Greenness entered the body. The grasses shivered with presences and sunlight stayed like a halo on hair and heather and hills. Walking into town, I saw in a radiant raincoat the woman from the fish shop what a day it is, cried I, like a sunstruck madman. And what did she have to say for it? Her brow grew bleak, her ancestors raged in their graves, and she spoke with their ancient misery, we'll pay for it, we'll pay for it, we'll pay for it. and we will pay for it. <clears throat> I thought I'd read you the beginning of this book, and happily Ramona said enough things about it that I don't have to say anymore, um, except that this little bit at the beginning has its, own, has its own sort of Scottish title, Are You Ready to Meet Your Maker? <laughs> Last week I read in the Asbury Press a story that has come to sting me like a nettle. In one sense, it was the usual kind of news item we read every AM, feel a deep, if not a wide, 
needle of shock, then horror about stare off to the heavens for a long moment until the eye shifts back to different matters, celebrity birthdays, sports briefs, obituaries, new realty offerings, which tug us on to other concerns, and by mid-morning, we've forgotten. But under the studded headline, Tex Nursing Deaths, the story detailed an otherwise normal day in the nursing department of San Ysidro State Teachers College, Paloma Playa campus in South Texas. A disgruntled nursing student, these people are always men, entered a building through the front door, proceeded to the classroom where he was supposed to be in attendance and where a test he was supposed to be taking was in progress, rows of student heads all bent to their business. The teacher, Professor Sandra McCurdy, was staring out the window thinking about who knows what, a pedicure, a fishing trip she would be taking with her husband of 21 years, her health, the course as flat-footed, unsubtle fate would have it, was called dying and death. Death, eth ethics, aesthetics, proleptics, something nurses need to know about. Don Houston Clevenger, the disgruntled student, a Navy vet and father of two, had already done poorly on the midterm and was probably headed for a bad grade in a ticket home to McAllen, Texas. This Clevenger entered the quiet, reverent classroom of test takers, walked among the desks and toward the front to where Miss McCurdy stood, arms folded, musing out the window, possibly smiling. And he said to her, raising a Glock 9 millimeter to within six inches of the space just above the midpoint between her eyes. He said, are you ready to meet your maker? To which Miss McCurdy, who was 46 and a better than average teacher and canasta player and who'd been a flight nurse in Desert Storm, replied, blinking her periwinkle eyes in curiosity only twice. Yes, yes, I think I am. Whereupon this Clevenger shot her turned around slowly to address the astonished nurses-to-be and shot himself in approximately the same place. I was sitting down when I began to read this in my glassed-in living room overlooking the grassy dune, the beach, and the Atlantic's somnolent shingle. I was actually feeling pretty good about things. It was 7 o'clock on a Thursday morning the week before Thanksgiving. I had a happy client closing at 10 at the realty office here in Seacliff, New Jersey, after which the seller and I were going for a celebratory lunch at Bumps Eat It Raw. My recent health concerns, 60 radioactive iodine seeds encased in titanium BBs and smart bombed into my prostate at the Mayo Clinic, all seemed to be going well. Systems up and running, locked and loaded. My Thanksgiving plans for a semi-family at-home occasion hadn't yet started to make me fitful. Stress is bad for the iodine seeds half-life. And I hadn't heard from my wife in six months, which under the circumstances of her new life and my old one seemed unsurprising, if not ideal. In other words, all the ways that life feels like life at age 55 were strewn around me like poppies. My daughter, Clarissa Bascom, was still asleep, the house quiet, empty, but for the usual coffee aromas and the agreeable weft of dampness. 
But when I read Miss McCurdy's reply to her assassin's question, I'm sure he had never contemplated an answer himself. I just stood right up out of my chair, my heart suddenly honking, my hands, fingers cold and a tingle, my scalp tightened down against my cranium the way it does when a train goes by too close. And I said out loud with no one to hear me, I said, holy shit, how in the world did she ever know that? <laughs> All up and down this middle section of Atlantic seaboard, the Asbury Press is the Jersey Shore's paper of record. There must have been hundreds of similar rumblings and inaudible alarms ringing household to household upon Miss McCurdy's last words being taken in, like distant explosions registering as wonder and then anxiety in the sensitive. Elephants feel the fatal footfalls of poachers a hundred miles off. Cats exit the room in a hurry when oysters are open. On and on and on and on. The unseen exists and has properties. Would I ever say that? Was of course <clears throat> my question and what my question meant in real speak. And the question everybody from Highlands to Little Egg, New Jersey would have been darkly pondering, it's not a question, let's face it, that suburban life regularly poses to us. Suburban life, in fact, pretty much does the opposite. And yet, it might. Faced with Mr. Clevenger's question and a little pushed for time, I'm sure I would have begun soundlessly inventorying all the things I hadn't done yet. Fucked a movie star? adopted Vietnamese orphan twins and sent them to Williams College, hiked the Appalachian Trail, brought help to a benighted, drought-ravaged African nation, learned German, been appointed ambassador to a country nobody else wanted, but I did, voted Republican. I would have thought about whether my organ donor card was signed, whether my list of pallbearers was updated, whether my obituary had the important new details added, whether, in other words, I'd gotten my message out properly. So, in all likelihood, what I would have said to Mr. Clevenger as the autumn breezes twirled in through the windows off bright Paloma Playa and the nursing girls held their sweet bubblegum breaths waiting to hear would have been, you know, not really. I, I guess not. Not quite yet. Whereupon he would have shot me anyway, <laughs> though conceivably not himself. That's enough to hear. Thank you. And I, I, I hope you all know Alistair Reed. He doesn't live very far from here. I, I just love that poem. Because the poem really embodies a lot of your own philosophy. Completely describes everything my grandparents ever taught me. <laughs> they, were, they were that strange branch of people called Scots-Irish people. And you all know what that means. Um, they were from Cavan. And whenever you say to anybody in Ireland that your family is from Cavan, they all start looking at the ground. Like, like, like. Why? Well, because of this, I mean, for, for among other things, because it, uh, I mean, I, I, mean I, I didn't grow up in Cavan, so I'm talking out of, out of turn here, but they, a certain bleak perspective on the world, I guess. Presbyterians, um, cheap. <laughs> Were you close to them, these grandparents? I, I was. Well, I mean, yeah, I was close to my grandmother. My grandfather was a suicide. He um, lost the farm in a card game, came home, couldn't face his wife getting up to find out that he'd lost his 
farm in the card game and shot himself on the front porch when he had three children <clears throat> under uh, seven. So uh, then I was close to her, but you know, this is not anything you all are particularly interested in, I suspect, but uh, I, I didn't find out my grandmother was Irish until I was 31 years old. How come? Because the immigrant experience for them was to erase all of that. They came from, from that part of Ireland in the 80s, in the 1880s, uh, leaving a life they didn't like very much and, and some poverty and some, and, and when they got over to where they got, in, which happened to be Arkansas, you have any idea of what Arkansas is like? Um, it's like Cavan, I guess. Uh, uh, they, they just wanted to not think about that. <clears throat> and so I lived with my grandmother and around my grandmother until 1972, and then she died. I never knew she was Irish. Didn't you notice her accent? No. No, I mean, you, you can't imagine how benighted childhood can be. Uh, I mean, that was her accent. It just, I mean, it's... it's and what, what turned the light on when you were thir 31, did you say? Um, I don't remember. The reason I, you know, I, I don't remember most things like that. I, suddenly I realized my grandmother was Irish. I, maybe, one of my, maybe one of my cousins um, did some genealogical spade work and turn that information up. I think they all knew it. I was just, I didn't know it. Uh, oh, God. But you're such a fantastic, <laughs> you're, you're such an observer. I'm surprised to hear this. Well, I am and I'm not. I mean, um, uh, I remember one time I, well, a guy I used to play basketball with, and he was a great big lunk of a guy. And, and um, <laughs> after I'd played with him one day, I I came in and I said to Christina, I said, you know, I said, Dave Stark, he said, he's the strangest looking man I ever saw. His eyes are about, you know, th three centimeters apart. She said, his eyes are three centimeters apart. He said, yeah, he has eyes on both sides of his head. His eyes are so far apart, she said, I'm surprised they'll focus. But what I saw was eyes that were very close together. Why? Because I'm not a very good observer. <laughs> Well, the hardest thing I have to do is describe anybody's face yeah. uh, to get it back to a literary, to a less personal. Um, I, I, I find that to be a very hard thing to do, to describe people's face. And I try to, I try to um, compliment myself by saying that I don't care how people look. And I think that's largely true. But also in the process of not caring how people look, I sometimes don't even notice. What are you? Well, I'm just trying to think about. I know I've what, derailed this whole thing. I no, no, I don't mind. <laughs> this is your gig. But, but, yes. But I, why did I say you were such a good describer? You're describing. You're describing thoughts. You're describing um, uh, almost, you know, like a stroboscopic picture of actions. Well, I'm making all that up. Um, I think that's the. I mean, I'm making it up with the help of my own, with the help of my own cognitive processes. You know. Not that I'm writing about myself, I'm, I'm projecting onto something, onto a, a little fascicle of words that becomes a, a character. I'm projecting an interior life, I'm making up a, a, a thought process, I'm, um, I'm, I'm not really reporting on something that I know about. And, and frankly, I mean, that's why writers are always saying that they like to write about things other than themselves. Why, they, why Keats thought negative capability was a good thing, and you can kind of take yourself a bit out of the take yourself out of the equation a bit, it's much, much more freeing to write about something and thereafter to, or before that, to make it up out of 
what little bits and pieces that come eclectically into your, into your experience uh, than it is to just you know, write about yourself, write about your own thought processes. So, you be, so being a good observer is a little bit of a misnomer. I'm a, because to, to be a good observer, you think that I see and therefore I write. It isn't what I do at all. I just make stuff up. Well, you observe your own uh, mind. You observe your own thought processes. Sometimes. You observe your own use of language. Um, and and I, I wonder whether I'd be right in saying that you're as much interested in language uh, the way your words and sentences tell a story as you are in the story itself, maybe even more. Yeah, I think I'm, I definitely am. It's only by accident that these things become intelligible. Evelyn <laughs> uh, 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 Walsh has this wonderful little line. He, he said that most people think that writing novels is about people's interest in characters. He said, but, he said, but for himself and for, for, for Walsh, it was true that what he was really interested in was experimenting with language. And, and in the process of experimenting with language, your own natural empathy about human beings comes to bear. And then, and then you start making those experiments with language favor human beings. And to, and, but but uh, I think initially for me, being sort of, I have learning disabilities, uh, uh, f for me, language at a very low level of cognition is what I'm sensitive to. And I'm dyslexic. And so because I'm dyslexic, I, I read everything very slowly. I take everything in very slowly. So my, my apprehension of language is, is cognitive like anybody else's, but it really is, is much more, if you'll excuse the expression, poetical, because I hear it. I, I hear syllables. I hear syncopations. I'm very sensitive to those qualities of language which are not cognitive. So for me to write a sentence, uh, I mean, it's, an, it's, it's really an experiment for, for, for me to write a sentence. There's a great little anecdote of Robert Lowell's <clears throat> and I don't, you know, Robert Lowell was kind of nuts, so I, I don't know if he was, what kind of nutsiness he had, but, uh, but he, he wrote a, he wrote a, Lizzie Hardwick told me this, uh, that he wrote a, a line, and in the middle of the line there was a, a word that was the wrong word, and any of you who have written sentences know how that goes. You, you, you have this great sentence that you write down, but someplace in there is just this word that's the wrong word. And then you go to the thesaurus and you sit around and you try to dream up other words and you just, and it won't work and it won't work and it won't work. And so what Lowell did was he decided to leave the wrong word in the sentence but put not in front of the verb. <laughs> and so the sentence, the, the sense of the sentence was reversed, of course, but for Lowell it had the right number of beats in it. And that, that, that's, for me, a really important way of apprehending if a sentence is right or not. If, it's so, if I feel it's syncopation being right. And then it's, 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 very much, it's very much like writing rhymed and metered verse, that you have, you have different masters to, to writing lines. And so one of the masters is how it sounds. One of the masters is the rhythm. One of the masters is what you think it's about when you start. But by the time you get it all finished, it may be actually be quite different from what you started out with. So the dyslexia, does that also, um, does, does that uh, arise in your sort of sense of ordering your life as well? Is that... Uh, well, I, you'd have to ask people who know me about that. I, I think that there are people who know me who think that I am very disorderly. But for me, 
I think I'm trying to control everything all the time. Um, and so, you know, it kind of, it's a bit in the eye of the beholder, um, yeah. So how does that translate into your writing a big book like this one? It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's a big clerical nightmare. Um, clerical in what sense? Clerical? Well, because clerical in the sense that you've got all these words and, and, you, and you have to find the right places for them. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and at the same time, you know, you're trying to find the right places for them. You also have to be sensitive to the fact that as you find the right place, you might think of something better to put there. So it's constantly, it's, it's constantly moving. It's, 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 which, uh, at the end of it, it's, it's not a nightmare when you're doing it, or when I'm doing it. It's wonderful when I'm doing it. It's, it's you know, Frost said, talking about writing, writing is the last vestige of your childhood, so you must enjoy it, and I do. But not in a childish way, but I know what he meant by that. What did he mean? Well, I think he means that you, I think he meant that you were free in the way that he, Frost, thought children were free. Uh, well, we all know that that's not true, but that's the way Frost thought about children. And there is a certain amount of, there, there's a certain amount of freedom, and I don't like the word play very much, because play means to me something not very serious. But there is a certain amount of freedom involved in making it up as you go along and um, being, being less responsible for it as you put it down. But there comes a moment at the end of all of this futzing around when, when it's got to make sense. And that moment is in the last year for me in the life of writing a novel when, when all of the things that I thought were good have to come under the, have to come under the hot lamp of my, of my notice and other people's notice. And then that, that gets to be that gets to be onerous. I mean, you can't, you can't, if you're going to be a novelist or a poet, you can't say you have a hard job or you can't say that you work hard because nobody makes you do it. You do it because of some other reason and obligation. But um, it, it, it gets to be old sometimes at the end there. Where does your love of language and words and, and sentences, where does it come from? Um, apart from the dyslexia and the necessity of getting things right and hearing things, um, <coughs> was there a storyteller in your family? Were books important? No, no, no. There was Frank O'Connor. Um, when, when I read Frank O'Connor and, and William Faulkner when I was 19, um, those big seas of words that Faulkner has in Absalom, Absalom, I just set myself adrift in those seas and it was wonderful. It was sensuous and it was also cognitive and it was uh, challenging and and completely uh, almost a morass in a way, a pleasurable one. And then there was Frank O'Connor who, who, who showed me something just from reading, who showed me the, the virtues of the story form. And so, uh, but that was, that was late on. I mean, because I was dyslexic, I didn't read a book fully through till I was 18. And so, um, but before that, you know, uh, I think this is true, seems true now. When I was a kid in Mississippi, we lived in a, in, a, in a segregated, racist, what you might think of as an apartheid situation. And um, we knew that it was an apartheid situation, or I did, and a couple of my pals did, and it was really absurd. Apart from being evil and malignant and you know, terrible, destructive, it was also quite absurd that, that you, had to, you, know, you, couldn't, you couldn't socialize with somebody who was of another color. You couldn't, have a social, you couldn't have a date with a young woman of another color. You couldn't use the same movie theater. You couldn't, you couldn't use the same drinking fountain. You 
didn't go to school with all those things. Pretty immensely absurd. And uh, I think that that absurdity pretty well from that top down infiltrated everything having to do with how we expressed ourselves because we were constantly trying to express ourselves over this absurdity and that that made us quite conscious of utterance, made us quite conscious that the things that we said were not consonant with the facts of life. And so that little, that level of irony, that, that, that lack of consonance between utterance and what things meant gives, gives room for, if you are of this temperament, a hypersensitivity to language. One thing doesn't mean what it, you know, you, you, you can't point to another human being who is, who is black and say, he's the same as I am. Can't say that, even though you know it. And, and all the time we've been talking about language and words, and you've created this character called Frank Bascom. You've, you've delivered him in three volumes now, or people that are like him in three. I yes, mean, yeah, I, I know, I know. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and everybody who's reading these books, um, even if they thought Frank was a bit sort of prosaic at first, kind of gets they to love him. They know he's not now. They know he's not now. But, you know, we, we, are, <laughs> we are Frank. I mean, we're all, Frank is us. I mean, Frank is an every, every man and woman. He's a, he's a, and you've created this, this seemingly human uh, character, and yet you haven't talked about character or story at all so far. No. I wonder why. Uh, that's, uh, there's uh, sort of obviously a dissonance there as yeah. well. Yeah, because, um, well, I mean, t fundamentally, I guess, uh, I mean, I spent my whole adult life making characters up out of language and uh, fortuitously and, um, and through happenstance and through mistake and through design. And, and one of the things that I, I become at 63 rather convinced of is that we make our own characters up for the most part. We have our past, and we have our present moments, and we have what we think about the future. But the sense, and this is how far I've come from Presbyterianism, uh, the sense that we have some inner essence which constitutes our character is something I'm extremely unbelieving about. And it may just be because I've spent my life making things up like that, and because I've you know, been an observer of life to the extent I have to people's behavior and to the, to the extent to which people's behavior is dissonant from their, from their belief systems and from what they say. And it just seems to me like character is something I'm less interested in than I used, than I used to be, or certainly less, less um, profoundly committed to than I used to be, which is not to say that characters in fiction are not useful, because I think after, after Walter Benjamin that, that books and literature and stories and characters are, are made by me for readers to use in some way. And if, and if you think that there are such things as people with characters out in the world, then maybe my book can bring you back to the world re, re, refreshed and replenished in some way. But we spoke about you being an 18-year-old who was dyslexic and yeah. what you read. So, um, and whether that formed the way you maybe right now, um, isn't, isn't that some kind of evidence of some Richard Fordian kind of character well, developing? Well, if it pleases you to think so, uh, but, and, and I, don't, I don't mean that um, 
I don't, I don't mean that cynically about human beings. Um, I, from, from inside, uh, and Simon Shama is the only person I know who talks about himself in the third person. Uh, <laughs> but inside myself, I don't feel, I, you know, I'm kind of like this, kind of looking for those walls. Uh, um, I don't feel it. I don't feel that sense of character about myself. I, you know, I have certain rules I try to live by and uh, try to do as little harm as possible, try to be useful in the world. But those seem to me to be so generalized as, as not to provide much of a, you know, much of a basis for saying that's a character. I think character is something that is, 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 a, is a notion that we invent so that other people will seem knowable, so that other people will seem almost controllable inside the sphere of our lives, that we attribute to people characters. We ascribe to them having rudimentary selves so that we can deal with them predictably. Well, Frank Bascom uses language like this in a way, doesn't yes. he? He, um, yes. he, in this, this permanent period of his life, perhaps mm -hmm. we should mention what well, perhaps you, you could mention what perm the permanent period actually is, but it's in the, in the language that he uses, in the way he tries to classify the world, um, he, he has his... Well, perhaps you could discuss that. Well, um, um, Frank is in a period in his life in the lay of the land in which he's 55 years old, and he, he says that this age that he is in, although it could be younger and it could be older, is what he calls the permanent period. And by the permanent period, what he, what he means and what he says is that it is that period when more of your life is behind you than is in front of you. It is a period when you can successfully cut yourself off from your mistakes. And, 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 and since you have so much less time in front of you than behind you, you have less time to make more mistakes than, than you had. And so it is a, a kind of a, a word chemistry here for uh, uh, directing him to live more in the present and to feel freer about the present. Now, of course, the permanent period is something I made up, but I, but I made it up with, with, with good, sort of, a good history. Uh, Sartre says that, um, says that it is for literature to, 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 to bring up out of experience, unreflected, uh, notions which, once you give them a name, can become then reflected. So I was trying to give a name to a period of life which all of the other names I knew were not adequate to. Uh, it, it, maybe it's 55, maybe it's 48, maybe it's 61, whatever it is, but it's that period which has those tenets. And I thought if I, I, thought if I did that and made it plausible to the reader, at least for the purposes of the um, uh, confinement of this book, that the, that the reader could use it. The reader could say, well, there is a permanent period, isn't there? And then maybe at the end of the book, the reader can say, yes, but yes, but I don't believe that anymore. But, that, but that's okay, too, if you agreed to the end. I mean, most, most guys like me, what we want you to do is read to the end. <laughs> and, and, and not have too many ideas about the book that are too different from mine. <laughs> But you can't control that, though, you know. Well, you can do, but that's, that's why you work really hard <laughs> to try to make sure that there's as little discrepancy between what the reader understands um, as, as can be but, and, and what I under, understand. I mean, that's, that's what authorship is. Authorship, 
authorship is not just taking responsibility for the fact that this is your book, but it's, it's all of the efforts that you make to, to, to get the reader to see it your way for the time that she or he is in your book. Uh, uh, Martin Amos is, I, I re recommend a book to you if you haven't read Experience by Martin Amos. It's a great book. And it's, it's just a uh, kind of a rattle bag of stuff, but it's, it's, it's terrific. But in it, he quotes, um, he quotes Northrop Frye uh, to say that, that um, literature is a disinterested use of language. You, you, you need have no out, you, you need have no investment in the outcome. Uh, but of course, we all do know that you have an investment in the outcome before it's finished. And then he also quotes Fry to say that what a literary book wants to do is to have a conversation with the writer, and for, rather a conversation with the reader, excuse me. So that you're reading my book and you're saying, ah, oh, that's a bunch of crap. I'm not going to, I don't believe that. But I'm just saying, well, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. And if you have an interesting and important conversation with the book, then I think I've done my job. Mm. Well, just back to the language of Frank Baskin, what he does, like, it kind of comes out of, well, I thought it came out of his, the fact that he's a real estate agent, and real estate agents are very good at summarizing things, like they say, four bedroom, two yeah. split level, um, something views, something, something yeah. ranch style, VU. something. VU. VU for view. Is it? Right. <laughs> um, and, and you think, well, he's actually trying to sort of take snapshots of everything, and it's not just describing houses. He does that to describe all kinds of things that he sees. He does. It's, it's, it's a kind of like, it's like German, isn't it? Like how you, you have those big long words of like rail, railway carriages stuck together. Right. Um, well, he does it for the sake of the reader. He does it, um, I mean, he's a confection. A, a character is a confection, it's a made up thing. Many people say to me, well, I didn't like your character very much. I thought to myself, I think to myself, well, no, you wouldn't want to marry him. <laughs> or you wouldn't, maybe you wouldn't even want to know him. But you can know him safely in the, in the limits of this book. And, and he can, in this foreshortened way, if I could be a good enough writer, uh, you know, uh, encapsulate life, encapsulate characters, which is, in fact, what books mostly do. And, and you can take away from it whatever you please. It, it, the, the idea, and you think about the great literature that you've read in your life, the idea is not to fall in love with the character. The idea is to, is to make the character and the language that makes him up and the, and the style of the book and the arc of the book useful to yourself in some way. So yes, he does that. And yes, if you knew somebody every day who you were married to who did that all the time, you might get tired of it. But my job is to make you not tired of it. What you have done um, as, for me as a reader is make me empathetic with the idea of a Frank Bascom and his daily struggle. And even though he calls it the permanent period, he is having trouble with his health. His wife ha yeah. he hasn't seen for six months, it, you know, he admits in the opening chapter. It's not that permanent, this permanent period. No. And in fact, when I started writing the book, I thought it would be it would be the horse I'd ride out on. And um, that the permanent period would be what Frank really came to the end of the book believing in. But when I, what I discovered in, in, the, in the process of writing the book was that it came to its end mm, 100 pages before the book did. And, and it came to its end in a quite natural way. And it came to its end 
as it became impossible for him to completely cut himself off from his past. I mean, we all try in some ways to, to make the past not be a great inhibition on our future, uh, and not be a big drag to our everyday life because we can't forget something, or we can't, we, we can't live beyond something. I mean, statistics say that Statistics say that people who live the longest and the happiest are people who can forget. And I'm, I believe that. I can't do it, but, but other people can. Um, so, um, I forgot the question. <laughs> you can forget, yeah. see? <laughs> That's, we're talking about something else here, though. <laughs> I, want to, I want to talk about suburbia, too, because um, Frank actually loves the suburbs and partly he's a real estate agent and he has to sell the suburbs to other people. Yes. But he drives around and he just kind of loves the way the roads go and he yes. loves the way it's been developing and he loves the idea of, of the commerce he sees around yes. him. Yes, he does. Do you, did you want to make me love the suburbs? Yes, I, I did. Uh, that started a long time ago when I started writing uh, The Sports Writer. I decided I would set my novel in New Jersey and that everybody in America thought New Jersey was a terrible joke and uh, that it was the back of an old radio, is what they said about New Jersey, a scene from New York. And I thought if I can set a book here, the way I should set a book here as a, as, was as a pay-in to New Jersey. As, as, uh, because I think it's the, the writer's job to, to go against the stream of convention, if it's important, to try to re to try to reset the reader's understanding of things for which convention is a sort of a stand-in explanation. So I started in the 80s writing about New Jersey, and I kept on writing about New Jersey, and I was always looking for new ways to, new language to uh, affirm it. You know, Steve, Wallace Stevens is a wonderful little line of Stevens. He said, we gulp down evil, choke at good. And when you think about that in literary terms, it's true. It's much harder and much less often done well that we affirm something in a book. It's much easier to complain about something or to deny something or to asperse something than it is to affirm something. So I thought I had a good thing going trying to affirm New Jersey because I thought it was probably a lifetime's occupation. <laughs> but by the time I got around to writing The Lay of the Land um, in the last four plus years, uh, having Frank drive around the suburbs, I, I really... Uh, you have to kind of push yourself out beyond what you ever knew. And, and what I figured out was that if he can say he likes it, and a lot of American suburbia is like a lot of suburbia in Britain. It's horrible. And it's unsightly, and it's the, it's the product of rapaciousness and the product of no planning, and it begins to be rather inhuman. But I thought if I could devise a language for affirming things that he saw, that it might be a first step along the way toward human beings taking responsibility for it. But because if you drive around all your life and all you see are things that you hate, you have in some ways the responsibility to try to try out another vocabulary. You know? And then in a way that's one of the things that literature tries to do. It tries to bring a new vocabulary to bear upon experience that you thought you were quite comfortable with in conventional terms and see then what happens. So language leads thought. Always, for me, always. I mean, I have thoughts, uh, but, but I put them to the test by trying to express them. And I put them to the test by simply indulging myself in language which may or may not be adequate to them, or which may dispute them, finally. 
and also there's plenty of times when I don't have any thoughts and, 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 and I'm just writing something, and I'm not talking about just, you know, gobbledygook. I'm, when I'm writing something based upon an intuition that I have that there's something there, um, writing to the light a bit because of some feeling that I have that, that, that generates language. Writing to the light. Yeah. Yeah, writing to the light in the sense that you, tr you, you, you start out with an inchoate sensation. And um, I, mean like, I mean, like Alistair's poem, you, you start off with, an, with, with a sensation about something, and then, you, and then you give language to it, and then you see what you get when you give language to it. I mean, that's really what a creative process actually is. People, people I think, like sometimes to believe that writers have thoughts, and then they write them down. Once in a while. Once in a while that happens. But often it's the case when you're asking yourself, what do I do now? I'm in the middle of this paragraph, I'm at the end of this paragraph, what in the world do I do now? And then you, what, what I do anyway, is I just, I just sort of think, what do I feel about this? Does how I feel, and I don't mean to say just feel in, 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 in sensuous terms, what do I feel in all ways about this, and then write toward that. Try to create some clarity out of it. And then if I write something and on, based on those processes and I don't like it, then I erase it. So do you write long and then just look for the essence of what you wanted to say or would, not? No, I just write long and then I write short and, and then I write long again. Uh, yeah. Nicely, nicely it, it doesn't, con it doesn't uh, conform to, any, to any, any rule when you're doing it. You have a notion of where your book is going, you have a notion of where it's been, you have a notion of where you are. And you just try to think to yourself, well, I'm a writer, I write. I'm writing about something very important to me. I wouldn't be writing it if I weren't, and if it weren't. And um, on the strength of that, you, you try to find, you, you, you try to give clarity to experience. My last question, just before I get the house lights up, so you might be thinking about your questions now. It's really about um, Frank um, being a kind of, you know, the model of, of basic optimism, hum, human optimism in the face of the death of a child, the breakup of a marriage, the fears of illness, age. the confusion of the whole world and age. Um, is, is that what you'd like your readers to feel in terms of taking something useful from the book? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, you know, again, I go back to Sartre, who was sort of my my primer reading when I was young, he, he said that to write about the darkest possible thing is itself an act of optimism because it proves that these things can be thought about. And it can be experienced and thought about in the, in the confinement of a big book. And you can put it down if you want to, or you can take some of it with you if you want to, but it's, you know, it's a victimless crime you know, to, 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 to read a book like that. I, I also think that, um, that the act of writing is fundamentally optimistic irrespective of the subject matter, because I have dedicated my whole life, all of my precious hours, to making something for somebody else, which I think they will have a future in which they can either treat this well or treat this badly or take this in or not take it in. So I think fundamentally from my standpoint to be a writer is always optimistic. Well, let's have the house lights up and see what questions we can 
there's, there's one here at the front. Now, where have we got? Um, yeah. Thanks. This is a very, very mundane question. Uh, I wonder. Oh, that goes right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> your writing routine, particularly as you're sort of, as you're a dyslexic, do you have set hours? You get up at the crack of dawn, say six hours. Yeah. An hour? But you know, a writer, a writer is a person who, having nothing to do, finds something to do. And so um, I, I just try to take it seriously and get up in the morning at a quarter to six and futz around till eight and then go to work. And you know, make breakfast for my wife and me and kind of become part of the day and then use the day from then on as much as I can uh, till three o'clock or so. I just want to add that I love your jersey. Oh, oh thank you. It's Heather. That's what Mrs. Hines told me, it was Heather. First of all, thank you very much for making the effort to come across to Bonnie, Scotland. Oh, my great pleasure. And to give us the delight of listening to your excellent discussion and indeed most enlightening discussion with the young lady from that other planet, Australia. <laughs> <coughs> My question is that uh, much as I enjoy reading the likes of Mark Twain, apart from reading Richard Ford, which current American writer should we have a look at? Uh, Jeff Eugenides. Uh, Jeffrey Eugenides. I just spent a week with him, and then I, but I just read, he's only written two books. Um, uh, one called The Virgin Suicides, which was his first sort of young man's book, and then this book called Middlesex, which is just wonderful, just simply wonderful. I mean, if you have to read a book in the next few months, read that. I mean, um, it's terrific. Um, yeah. And I could give you, I could give you t maybe four other names, but I could give you one I feel really confident about, but I'll give you one more, too, because, it's, because it, it, it would make me seem less... less uh, geocentric, uh, outstealing horses by a man named Per Pedersen, uh, who's, who's Norwegian and uh, won the Irish Impact Prize. It's a, it's a great little intense book about life, uh, sort of life during the Second World War and then life uh, 30 years on uh, beyond the Second World War. Hi, um, I just wondered how you found, <laughs> uh, hi. how you found out you won the Pulitzer for Independence Day and what your reaction was and, and how your life was for the, for the first week of that uh, notification? Um, uh, I was in France and I was in Rennes and I was um, having dinner with a bunch of pals of mine um, at a hotel, uh, at, a, at a restaurant, um, actually with the American novelist Ernest Gaines. We were all sitting at a long table. I'm, I never thought about the Pulitzer Prize never won it before. I couldn't see any reason why I would win it now. And um, uh, a, a, somebody had a cell phone at the table, and he said, it's for you. And I just thought, oh, right, it's for me. So I, he handed me the, the phone, and, and it was my editor, Olivier Cohen, who calling from Paris, and he said, Richard, he, he, he said, are you sitting down? I said, well, I'm having dinner. I said, I, I always sit down and have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> he said, um, he said, you won the Pulitzer Surprise, and I, um, I was, oh, of course, I was shocked, because uh, I, I, the, the Independence Day had had a wonderful life as a book. I, I felt completely satisfied and rewarded by how it had lived, and 
um, it was gone on to its subsequent life. But I got up and I left the table modestly and, and sat down and sort of recovered myself. And then I came back to the table and never mentioned it. Uh, because, I knew, because we were having a wonderful time. And Ernie Gaines is a great pal of mine. And I, I didn't want to inflict my good news on what was already a wonderful evening uh, amongst ourselves. And particularly to another writer, um, you know, writing is not a competitive business. You find sometimes people who feel competitive, but I don't. And most of the people I know who do this don't feel competitive. Uh, that isn't to say that everybody's good news is as joyous to you <laughs> as it is to the person whose news it is. So I didn't want to run the risk of coming back to, to dinner and saying, ah, guess what? <laughs> Before the dessert, let me just drop this little hand grenade of news into the dinner. So we, you know, I went back home and I called my wife. And it was great. I mean, and you're right to ask the question the way you did, because it was about a week. And um, I was thrilled and shocked and surprised. And I was happy that the book would find a readership, probably, perhaps that it wouldn't have found otherwise. So it was all good. And people sometimes say, well, did it kind of make you feel self-conscious? Or did it make you feel like you had to write a better book? And I thought, no. No. It was just good and nice. Jeff uh, Eugenides won the Pulitzer Prize, too, for his middle sex. And um, they give them away every year. Did you pick <laughs> <laughs> did you pick up the tab that night for the dinner, though? I did not, no. <laughs> I wasn't that happy. <laughs> yes, in the front row here. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the long novels. Could you say something about your short stories, which are an absolute delight? Is there a different mindset? I mean, given this language that you've, we know, it rolls along, and yes. um, short story, it still rolls along, but of course the story is punched down a bit harder. How, how do you achieve that? Well, both of these are received forms. I mean, I, I only write short stories because I read some that I liked. I mentioned Frank O'Connor and John Cheever and all, all kinds of writers who wrote short stories. So I received it as a form, and as a form, it, it, it has some rather s specific lineaments, shortness being one. Uh, whereas novel, and I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious, but in novels as a received form are much less specified in their lineaments. They can be all kinds of links, they can be everything, but short shorts have to be kind of short. So right away I start with that. This has to be short. And once I start uh, screwing down the length of it, then there are fewer sentences and there are, there are because there are fewer sentences, I have fewer chances to make, to, to, to make the reader experience what I'm writing. So those things come to bear. Um, but it's, it's, it's also worth saying that I think the short stories that I write are very different from the novels, as you are, as you are suggesting, and maybe even sound different and look different on the page. But, but human beings, all of us, we all have different voices we speak in. And you think about your experience with all of the people that you know, speaking to your mother, speaking to your, the person you love, to your wife or your husband, speaking to your doctor, speaking to your priest, speaking to the, the hotel clerk when you're checking in at night. You speak to them with a different mode of address because you're trying to make something different plausible. And the words that you choose are different and the length of utterances are different. And so, for writers, all of those modes of address are 
can be can be used in different kinds of different kinds of genres, if you will. So um, it's not unusual, or doesn't seem unusual for me, that a story would be very different, sound different, look different from a novel, because I think I have all those voices going on in my head all the time. But, and you can also see from that why I don't have a very I don't have a very elaborated sense of character, because I I feel like I feel like I can try to make anything plausible. And that's troublesome <laughs> um, in terms of human character. Thank you. For yes, Madam, um, in the green. Yes, ma'am. Hello. I hope Hello. it's not just because I'm from Dublin, but part of the enjoyment of reading The Lay of the Land was there was some lovely echoes of, you know, Leopold Bloom and Ulysses, the, the day-long journey, the, yeah. his dead son, the, uh, the funeral, the fight in the bar, and so on. Am I reading something into it just because I'm from Dublin, or yes, was you there? Yes, absolutely are. <laughs> or is there any hint of that? But that's why we like the Irish, though, <laughs> because you know Ireland is the center of that little universe. And uh, I, I mean, I just took a I just took a posi position at Trinity, so I, I must like it too. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't even like Ulysses, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, it seems to be a book. Uh, and I, and if, if you are Irish, you can read Ulysses like a Baedeker. You can read it like, you can read it like the history, as Joyce says, as the history of, this, of your civilization. But for me, it was a book that would never have gotten read had it not been for English professors. <laughs> but, and that's not to condemn it. It's just to say that it has a very, it has a very specific and, and rather localized frame of reference for me. And so um, I, mean, I, I respect it as a monument. But when I... You know, when I'm looking around someone's house, as I was Mrs. Hines' house, for a book to read, I pass by Ulysses. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, those things, dead children, fights in bars, uh, things encapsulated into one day. There were probably other people who did that, too, you know. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I'm very curious, in the introduction it was mentioned that we meet up with Frank pre-Bush and pre-9-11. And I'm wondering how hard, I mean, we're told here the whole time that everything in America has so totally changed since 9-11. How hard was it to, to, to write a book which not only didn't refer to that period, but get your thinking around it so that you weren't putting in post-9-11 thoughts? Good, that's a... That's a, that's a it's a serious question, an interesting question, and it's something I really did have to do, have to do as you said, get my head around it. Uh, I didn't think, since I started the book after 9-11, that I, I had any capacity at all to write a post-9-11 book. For me, those events, horrific as they are, are still, are, are still within the province of, for lack of a better word, journalism. There are still things being reported about it. It hadn't those events sunk into the ground sufficiently and then percolated back up into my uh, sort of life of sensation that I, that I thought I could write about it at all. So I didn't really feel like I had a choice in writing about it. So I set the book in 2000 and, and I thought, well, why would you do this? Why would you set a book in 2000? Uh, and I, and I, I, I looked at all the things that were going on in America then and I, and I thought, well, perhaps you could write a book which, which demonstrates something which I was discovering, which was that everything that happened on September 11th, 2001, was going on in America 
beforehand anyway. It just hadn't quite come to that terrible moment of crescendo as it did on that day, but it, but it was there. There was, there was apathy toward government. There was a fear and to some extent a suspicion of the other. There was um, bombings and violence going on. There was all kinds of things going on then. And I thought I could write a book which in a way showed America as it went into that moment. What was going on, what was not working, what was dysfunctional. So that's, that's why I did it. And once I came to a kind of a conceptual notion of doing that, then it became not very hard to keep those references out. There are throughout the book about, I think there are two specific references to the World Trade Center, but they are references that would have been normalized before 9-11 anyway. So that, that, that's a, a good question, but it, it, it's, it's a good question particularly in, in, in this way. It lets me put on display how thinking often goes in the writing of a novel. You find a thing that you both do and a thing that you don't want to do, and then in a sort of backwards logic, you, you develop a concept for why you want to do it. And then once you develop that concept, or me anyway, then doing it becomes a little simpler. It's a moral concept, though. It's not, just a, it's not just a circumstantial concept. It's a moral concept because it says, for my book to be good, I must do this. And that's, that's very useful for writing anything, I think. For it to be good, I must do this. And we've um, just about run out of time. But what I wanted to say was, if you allow Richard Ford to settle himself into the bookshop just next door, the signing, the signing spot. Um, if you've got a question, he might be able to answer it for you as he's signing your book. So if you let us get out first, um, and then we'll settle him in, and then he'll be there for you to avail yourself of. And let us both say thank you very, very much. And thanks to, the, to Ms. Lockerbie for letting us do this. Yes, and thanks, Mr.